Good morning, everyone. Good morning, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. Today, we are delighted to have Anita Aurora with us from the University of Chicago, and she will be introduced to us in a moment by John Lurie. John is a professor of medicine, of orthopedics, and a professor in the Dartmouth Institute. He's the section chief of hospital medicine here, and an all-around great guy. So John, would you come up and talk to us about uh, Vinny? And while he's doing that, I will um, call your attention to the code for today's accreditation. It is E6C5, if you text that in you will receive the credits for today's uh, session. There are no conflicts of interest to disclose, but Vinny will show uh, some of her funding in an upcoming slide. John. Thanks, Rich. So it's really a privilege and an honor to have Dr. Aurora here uh, with us to give medical grand rounds. She's uh, truly one of the stars of academic hospital medicine. Uh, she did her undergraduate work at Johns Hopkins, got her medical degree at Washington University in St. Louis, then went on to do her residency, chief residency, and get a master's of public policy at the University of Chicago, where she is now, and she is an associate professor of medicine, assistant dean of scholarship and discovery, the director of the GME Clinical Learning Environment Innovation, and also helps direct the Hospital of Scholars Training Program and the Merits Medical Education Fellowship. She's a prolific writer with over 150 peer-reviewed publications, including co-authorship of an uh, extremely important textbook called Understanding Value-Based Healthcare. She's a PI of numerous federal grants. She's been elected, an elected member of the American Society of Clinical Investigation, serves on the board of directors for the ABIM, and lots of other things. I think the best way that I can show you how truly impressive she is, is to get out of the way and let her show you herself. Please help me welcome Dr. Aurora. Um, first, thank you so much for uh, spending your Friday morning with us um, for uh, Medical Grand Rounds. I was just saying that uh, in Chicago, uh, we canceled Medical Grand Rounds over the summer, um, probably because it's Friday at noon, and so uh, it was a little bit harder to get faculty to stay for the weekend. Um, but, uh, but it's really lovely to have um, all of you here, as well as um, all of you watching from uh, way out there. And so, um, so the title for today is Beyond Vista, Bridging leadership to align education and institutional missions and quality, safety, and value. Um, and so I sent in this title before I created the talk, and so I will first start off with a few funding disclosures, several of which were already mentioned. Um, and, um, and then you might be wondering, as I was too on the way here, what am I going to talk about? And so I looked at the title and thought you might be wondering, what is VISTA? What is bridging leadership and why is it important now? Why does alignment matter and how could you do this? And so over the next... Um, 45 minutes, I hope to really make the case for why this is important. And so, um, so first I'm going to start off with what is VISTA. And so do we have any medical students in the audience by any chance? 
Okay, welcome. And um, and so what you what you may not realize is actually there's a huge movement to reform medical education around the third science. And so you're probably like, what is the third science? And so that's really health system science or healthcare delivery science. And I certainly feel like I've come to the mecca of where healthcare delivery science has originated. Um, and this really has caught on in the medical education space. And um, uh, sort of a, an interesting ally for this work has been the American Medical Association because uh, they have really rebranded their mission and one of their three major missions is around changing medical education through consortium grants. And so they funded um, several consortium grants around changing the medical school of the future. The first round, 12 schools each received a million dollars each to really work on this, um, including UCSF and NYU and several others. And then in the next round, they, um, and I should say about 130 schools applied. And uh, in the next uh, round, um, similarly, a lot of interest. They didn't have as much money, so it was only $25,000 a year for three years. But we were successful in receiving that grant. And so you might be wondering, well, what, what did we do? And they specifically wanted us to translate some of the work in healthcare delivery sciences. And so this is what we put together, which was, um, and I should say, I normally work in graduate medical education. And this was taking some of the work we had done and bringing it to undergraduates, medical education. And so when we think about the core elements of healthcare delivery sciences, uh, we needed a way to package it and sort of brand it into our curriculum, which had already been reformed. So it was going to be a challenge. And so we thought about value, improvement, safety, team training, and advocacy. And one of the things that I was really motivated by was um, oftentimes when I meet medical students, um, I meet amazing people who are doing amazing things, like who will go on to really either discover, uh, you know, the next gene that might actually help influence um uh, a cure all the way to translate community health work and really improve health for people in their communities. Um, and no matter who I met at our medical school, they would say the following, you know, oh, I'm a third year. I'm just a medical student. I'm a second year. I'm just a medical student. And this would bother me because they were here, they were our, on the patient care team, and we shouldn't really be training our future leaders of healthcare to say, I'm just a medical student. And so what we discussed is in lieu of a deficit model for medical students, we aspired to train them to really serve as advocates for the healthcare delivery system as well as their patients. And so we integrated some longitudinal active learning experiences. Now, I should tell you that in full disclosure, when our dean asked us to apply for this grant, I said to him, it's not a lot of money. I'm not sure we'll be able to do anything. And so then he emailed again, and you know, I got another phone call. And then I said, OK, we can try. And he's like, well, what if you apply with something you're already planning to do or do? And I was like, OK, that sounds like a good idea. So we did a lot of re-bolstering and renaming, but also some new things. And so um, some of the work that we did, we had already going on, and so for example, we already were training our medical students in screening for cost-related non-adherence using various uh, methods around uh, making sure that they were prescribing generics as well as understood um, the importance of screening patients for cost-related non-adherence. One out of every four patients discharged from the hospital is at risk for cost-related non-adherence. And, um, and actually measuring that in, in the clinical setting and seeing that they were actually doing a great job with that. One of the things that we 
we don't have in our medical school is interprofessional team training. And the reason for this is, like Dartmouth, we actually are on a world-class um, university campus, uh, but we don't have a lot of allied health professionals here on campus. And so, sim so I have that similarity with you. And so we really had to partner with existing uh, practice professionals like nurses and pharmacists to figure out how to provide that training. And so uh, we started a program called Unite, Understanding Nursing Interprofessional Team Experiences, um, to provide first-year medical students their first clinical experience was going to be working directly with nurses to appreciate the roles that nurses have in care. Um, and we chose 11 high-performing units with the help of our CNO um, based on patient satisfaction and nursing engagement data and has sent our um, students out to actually go and observe these nurses and reflect on what they had learned. And there's a lot of things that students um, need to sign up for. There's very few things when you release the sign up for that they're complete within 24 hours with no email reminders, and this was one of them. So this was a huge hit, and I think that um, talking with Greg, uh, you guys have a similar program here, and so not surprisingly, um, this doesn't seem like the most novel program, but I will tell you, I'll leave out that you know we are in Chicago, and there's a lot of unions in Chicago, so this did require me working with the unions to get nursing time in order to do this, and so some, some things that appear quite small actually are a heavy lift. Um, now, we also continued the thread in our clinical skills course, or our doctoring course, in the second year, adding in a variety of things around value and quality, our patient safety horror room, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And we also added something called the discharge OSCE, again, partnering with existing professionals, this time physical therapists, who often say that they're not contacted early enough about discharge and, um, and sort of feel out of the loop, but often are the key people who are helping our especially our older patients, get home. And so, um, so what we did was we designed a discharge OSCE. We trained our students in um, an ideal model of discharge according to the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. This is a mnemonic they use. Um, and also had a panel to emphasize the interprofessional team roles, invited patient experience to bring a patient to talk about this, uh, uh, the, like the work of discharge and how that impacts patients. Had a standardized patient who's uh, here in the middle um, actually play a role. And in this setting, we actually threw a curveball, which is as opposed to most standardized patient cases, which go as expected, we asked the patient to, based on my own clinical experience, act shocked that she was going to go home. And so she was supposed to say um, when the student walked in, you know, I'm here to discharge you today, um, she was supposed to say, today? I didn't know I was going home today, and provide some resistance. And um, when we piloted this with our fourth years, um, we, had, we had coached the, we had figured out the students would, should use the phone in the room, which is actually right over there in the, uh, on the picture. You can see the phone in the room to call physical therapy when necessary. And our fourth years were like, you're going to have to write that on the door chart. There's no way the second years are going to get it. And I was like, it's going to be too easy. But I trusted my fourth year. So I went with the, the fourth years. And um, myself and several of the other faculty observers watched the entire class go through this OSCE. And it turns out that they were right, because even though the third bullet said, use the phone in the room to call physical therapy when necessary, the second bullet said, your attending wants you to discharge this patient before noon, and so you must actually complete the discharge before you go. And before we start, one of my former medical education fellows said, you know, Vinny, what you 
need to do is always say the following before they go into the room, which is live into your role. And that's what I say. And so the students went in, and what they would do is they would approach the patient, introduce themselves, go through the standard introduction. And the, as soon as they opened their mouth to talk about discharge, the patient acted surprised. And from there on out, it was a complete train wreck is the best way that I can describe it. Uh, because uh, nobody picked up on the idea that they needed to use the phone except for one person. And so what ended up happening is in the first few, this was quality improvement on the fly, we actually had a physical therapist waiting on the other end, an actual physical therapist, to have the interprofessional conversation and come into the room, reassure the patient, and let them know home physical therapy had already been ordered and that the durable medical equipment was on the way. And so we had um, several students, including one I will distinctly remember when she walked into the room, she was so flustered that she broke the fourth wall of the standardized patient experience and looked at me and said, Dr. Aurora, I think I'm in the wrong room. Is this the right door chart? And I said, no, it is. You know, keep going. And so, um, and so then uh, the next experience I had, they never called physical therapy. And so I thought, oh, this is terrible because we've got this great physical therapist. I want those students to have the interaction. So we built in at 10 minutes, it was a 20-minute encounter, at 10 minutes, if they hadn't used the phone to call physical therapy, it would they would just be a generous knock on the door. And so I had some other students observing with me, and they were like, wow, this is like real life. I'm watching Grey's Anatomy, you know, because somebody was coming into the room and no one expected it. Um, and what happened with the patient was truly amazing, because the patient um, really, really lived into her role, and she would get increasingly more agitated about not calling physical therapy. And she's like, I really think you should call physical therapy. <laughs> and, and then the student, some students would have that like pause and slow motion and then look at the phone and then look at me and then pick up the phone. And so, um, so some did get it right. And this is actually a picture of uh, one of our students who actually did a beautiful job. And this is sort of what we're now using as the master training video to say this is how it should be done. But in the debrief, the I asked the students, like, what did you think? And they said, it never occurred to me the patient wouldn't go along with what I said. So I just want you to think about that for a second. And so, um, and so, you know, and I assure you, we admit world-class students, right? And so, um, and one of the challenges is, the other thing they said is, um, well, in all the other SP cases, things just go as, as they should. You know, what, I wouldn't have ever imagined this. And so I was like, okay, well, what have we done here? So the last thing we did with our program was we also gave everybody iPads, uh, minis, so that they could have actually tools, all the tools that we actually um, had taught them on their iPad, including Epic Access, to really turn them into an advocate so they were part of the team, could use the iPad to teach patients. So then we sent them off into third year, and then we thought, well, great, this is great. We're going to study this and be like, how did they do in third year? So how do you think they did in third year? No different. In fact, they were like, what are you talking about? You know? And so uh, what our students do right before third year and during third year is actually they create viral videos. I don't know if yours do, but uh, this is actually uh, one of our former students who's a pediatric resident at, um, at CHOP now, who's very, very talented, a former acapella singer from Yale, who created a video, a viral video from Frozen instead of um, Let It Go, I Don't Know. It has 
3 million views, and it was also um, an awardee in the MEMI contest, the Medical Emmys. Uh, and so, um, so I put this slide up here because this is really their experience and their words. So she's paraphrasing, the past two years did not prepare me for M3. So I love this video, but that, vi that video and those lines really are painful for me to watch because for anybody who teaches in the preclinical setting, you're like, what have we done? And so then I thought, okay, I'm going to come figure it out because I'm coming to Dartmouth, who's, which is the home of healthcare delivery sciences. And then I thought, well, I should have known this because Paul Batalden has said every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets. And so my system is designed to produce um, students that make viral videos, I guess. But uh, but I, I also say that to say that I'm not going to get traction because the system is what's more important than the learning that I'm giving. And there's a lot of work around the hidden curriculum, et cetera. But really, as somebody who works on also knowing about quality improvement in healthcare system, I'm like, okay, the, the job number one is fix the system that our students are entering. And so it's with that that I started to think, well, we have a huge problem and huge change needed ahead of us. And so um, when I was at... Um a graduate student at the Harris School of Public Policy. I got to take a lot of classes around change management and managing culture change and learning about John Cotter's eight steps for change. And I won't, you know, bore you with the steps, but really discuss that, you know, what you likely know is that it's very important to lay down the foundation, create the climate for change, and create a sense of urgency, form a powerful coalition, and create a vision for change. So I'm going to highlight a little bit about how I was able to do that initially um, with this bridging leader role. So what is my sense of urgency? And so this was 2013 at the time, and actually I, I had a strong personal sense of urgency because I had just participated in a really transformative uh, leadership retreat that actually was led by um, Joanne Conroy called the Women of Impact that really taught me that I need to live into my legacy and think about what was my impact going to be. And so my impact was I was really going to transform uh, graduate medical education to produce the physicians that we need to serve um, to serve our nation's health needs. And in order to do that, I needed to create that urgency, but I needed to do it for two stakeholders. The first is for the medical educators in our, in our institution and those leaders. And fortunately, around the same time, the ACGME, which does tend to create a sense of urgency in medical educators, uh, had launched this CLEAR program, Clinical Learning Environment Review, which really focused on all these core areas, but specific attention to quality and safety. I had done a lot of work as well in supervision, duty hours, and transitions of care previously. Um, but that was really something that was uh, sort of IQ that was missing in um, GME that we were going to bring to the table. And the focus was specifically on alignment as opposed to what programs were used to. This was not business as usual where they were going to come visit the medicine program. They were going to come visit your institution, and if your CEO was not available, they weren't going to come. And so they wanted the CEO at the table. They wanted the chief quality officer. So this was really a good sense of urgency. Interestingly, it wasn't as much a sense of urgency for our healthcare system leaders, and partly that's because, you know, when we think about ACGME work, you know, and, you know, an entrustment, most of the health system leaders would be like, I entrust you and the DIO and all of the people in medical education to deal with the ACGME and tell me what to do. So it wasn't going to be that they were going to come to the table and say this was something that we needed to do. So having leaned on some of my work in health policy and my training, I realized that I 
I needed a different language to speak to health system leaders to buy into this new proposal. And so, unfortunately, in 2013, this was really this, uh, you know, big transformation, as all of you know, from going from volume to value. And this is actually a graphic that's still up on the CMS website just to highlight, you know, when, when did all these programs start? And so even though we're now really talking about APMs and MIPS, it was really around 2013 people were just starting to be like, well, you know, how when the value-based purchasing was starting to get reported, readmissions reductions program. And so knowing that language really helped me because I could see that what our hospital leaders had were thinking was, why can't I get my residents or nurses or faculty to follow these quality measures or work on these care transition programs, et cetera? And not only that, this other New England Journal of Medicine article came out at that same time, which actually questioned um, our academic health centers in the United States. If they don't change, are we facing a growing risk of extinction? So I didn't need to create a sense of urgency, I realized for them. They had this sense of urgency, but I needed to speak the language and tap into to it so that my vision could reach them. And so, um, so using that as a platform, um, here was my vision, which is one of the ways that we could actually achieve a win was to merge the health system and education silos so that we were not going to be working separately but working together. And in order to do that, we were going to need a new model of leadership where we didn't just have leadership in the medical school and leadership in the hospital, but we were going to need people who bridged that leadership who could walk the walk and talk the talk for both groups. And the reason was that way we could actually be coordinated. The second was that that bridging leader would be close enough to the front line, particularly around um, the people that are at the sharp end of healthcare, like the residents and the nurses and all the other um, frontline clinicians, um, to figure out, well, here's what matters to the institution and align that, but at, let's engage the front line to figure out how to actually make care work better. And then go for the win-win. So what does go for the win-win mean? Well, uh, this is actually part of Cotter's Steps for Change which is go for early wins. Document what you have done early so that you can actually build on that. And what I would often see is that we would have our CMO or CEO come to a resident forum occasionally, and they would say, we need to work on readmissions. And so for a quality improvement, uh, all of our residents have to do quality improvement projects, and uh, they get two weeks to do the quality improvement project. And so you can imagine how daunting it is to tell a resident that, well, in two weeks, we'd like you to read reduce readmissions. No one else has been able to do it, but, but you'll be okay. You know, and so I think that that was the challenge that our residents were facing when they were like, we don't understand how to tap into this work, and, um, and that the hospital was employing tons of people to actually do performance improvement work that the residents didn't even know. And so that was how we were going to go for the win-win. A win for the hospital and a win for GME because it's going to be something feasible the residents could control. So how does bridging leadership help with alignment? Well, pretty obvious, um, sort of align educational, clinical priorities, goals, and opportunities. But what might not be so obvious is that alignment needs to occur on both sides. And so wherever you're sitting, like the, for the medical educators, you, we can't just sit pretty to be like we're doing business as usual because we need to develop curricula to support alignment. When we teach safety, are we teaching about the safety issues that our hospital faces and our patient faces, or are we just teaching 
reaching global safety. And similarly, for the health system, how are we going to implement systems that allow the trainees and the people at the front line of care to actually be aligned and come meet us halfway? And so, um, so, um, so with that, we actually did a, embarked on a lot of first educational work to do the alignment, working directly with people like our uh, chief safety officer, chief quality officer. And so one of the first things we did, and I, I've done a lot of work in simulation, um, is um, think about some of the stuff we already had going in simulation, but that needed to be amped up and aligned. And so one of the simulation um, areas that we did was we welcomed all of our new residents uh, with a GME orientation, um, and we had done some safety training there, but it wasn't experiential and it had no connection to what the hospital really needed us to do. So we went to the hospital leaders and said, what would you like all incoming residents to know? Normally this is a question we ask program directors. And the hospital leaders were like, well, we really want us to be, you know, no harm, high reliability. It's very important they know about hand hygiene and all these issues. Um, they've got to know that these are the things that when you walk into a room, you've got to be able to speak up and say this is a problem. So we said, great, we'll design a simulation to test this. And so we embedded eight safety hazards into this simulation, which we call the room of horrors. Some residents are scared, literally, to start in the simulation. Um, and it's really like a where's Waldo. They've got to be able to find that the bed rails down or that the patient has a wrong name. Um, Ban, uh, their name band doesn't match their medication. Um, and we also embedded four low-value hazards in the horror room. And this really came from our chief quality officer. And I will say this is not something I would have done without really his guidance. And he said, you know, these, the, these are things that are really hitting our bottom line that we need to be watchful for. Many of them are hospital-acquired conditions that lead to caudies and, you know, other issues, falls. And so we embedded these four low-value hazards, which are actually things that I would say are in the room that are commissions. They, they're there. They shouldn't be there. The intern needs to recognize to de-implement and stop them. And so how did our residents do? Well, they did great with the safety hazards. And in fact, 96% for a C. diff patient recognized that the hand hygiene was not optimal and there was no uh, uh, PPE in the room. Now, interestingly, our CMO happens to be an infectious disease doctor. So we have a lot of hand hygiene training, tons. And so I was like, you know, maybe we can reclaim some of that time, you know, and they don't need to do all those hand hygiene web modules. They got it. And so similarly, um, they did really great on other, other things, but look at the low value ones. They didn't do so great on unnecessary restraints. Unnecessary Foley catheter, only 20%. Um, six percent got unnecessary blood transfusion, and this we had a stand-up committee working on blood transfusion at the time, and this data really fueled them to be like, you know what, we need some educational initiatives here because this patient had a hemoglobin of 10 and had a blood transfusion hanging and no indication, and no one got unnecessary stress ulcer prophylaxis. And similarly, we tried to make it easy. We had the patient have C. diff. They had pneumonia. They had a history of falls. You know, so we really tried to be like, you really shouldn't um, have this patient on stress ulcer prophylaxis. They've never been on event. And it turns out that when in the debrief, the interns said um, the following. They were like, well, and these were all new interns. If somebody started it, you know, I, I don't think that I should stop it because I probably it's there for a reason, and so I would never have thought about that. And so I want you to also dwell on that as you unleash 130 new clinicians into your environment who are not ready to speak up and are really worried that perhaps they don't 
uh, that even though they recognize, you know, a lot of them would be like, I thought about that, but I didn't write it down because, you know, I figured it was there for a reason. And that's not going to be the type of culture that is going to result in change. And so, um, so this was very impactful for us. We also looked at whether you had prior training before this experience. And interestingly, um, the responses, people were, some people were unsure whether they had prior training. And then those that had prior training, some were very unsatisfied with their training. So we had to break it up into four groups, satisfied with training, unsatisfied, no training, and also this unsure category. And sort of sobering, it didn't matter. Your prior training in medical school didn't matter. And I know we are doing a lot of safety training in medical school, um, and this is actually a, uh, you know, WMC has a big focus around this, um, as well as high-value care. And so one of the questions is, are we training the right way? And so um, we've now started with the putting a lot of this um, educational material for second-year students before they get into the third year so they feel comfortable speaking up. Um, so I could go on and on about the horror room because uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff there, but I do want to move on with some of the other work that we did, which is about speaking up. And so a big focus on CLEAR is actually event reporting and making sure the residents actually report events in the institutional event reporting system. And I highlight this because um, when I was a chief resident like John, you know, we were, I would often hear like, oh, this happened or that happened. And I don't think I ever said to anybody years ago, did you ever report that or is it in the reporting system? And even going to M&M conferences, a lot of times you go to M&M conferences and maybe the department hears about this case and the faculty will be like, yeah, you should do a better job next time or, you know, an interesting, you know, case dissection or, you know, yeah, we learned some safety. But the, the question is, did the institution learn, right? Was that knowledge embedded into the institutional event report system so that we could capture it and move on? And so uh, one of the things we did was we actually um, – created an ID badge and let people know this is so important, we want you to carry this on your ID badge and that when you see something, say something so you report an event. And so, um, so we were actually able to increase our percentage of event reporting. And so anyone have an idea about what percentage nationwide of uh, event reports are reported by residents in an institution? Pardon? Five percent. Great. So it actually turns out that um, in my institution and in many, um, the first day I got hired, I actually tried to submit an event report as a resident just to be like, what, what would happen? And it turned out there was even no field to indicate that you were a trainee, even if you were not submitting an anonymous report. So we actually had to hand filter uh, for uh, and match uh, by GME program and name what we were getting through our event reporting system. And we were getting um, less than one percent. And we felt pretty bad about that. So the predominant people who submit events, who submits events? Nurses, Nurses exactly. And so that they have a wonderful culture of that. And, um, and so a lot of times the residents aren't submitting events. And when we, we felt pretty bad about the 1%, we actually were able to get it to 3% uh, with some of our efforts. And so it doesn't sound big. And again, I felt pretty bad about this when AC Jimmy came. And then I t was told, wow, that's great. That's the aspirational goal for all residency programs nationwide is 3%. And I was like, okay, you know, yes, you know. And so, 
Um, not to say we should rest on our laurels there, but just to say that um, this is a problem nationwide. Now, here's just a graph of some of the event report. Now that we have data, we've modified the event reporting fields. So what does bridging leadership do? It allows me to work with patient safety leaders to say, hey, we need to have an event reporting field. File an IT request form, and a few months later, work at the table to get the field that we needed, as well as create the reports that we need to feed to GME and to their programs about how their programs are doing, and track over time how many events are reported. Now, looking at this graph, you might think our hospital is really unsafe in September, which is odd because we do get a lot of events. And I'll tell you that that's not the case. That's actually about when we teach about event reporting, and I'm the one who does the teaching, and so there's a huge spike up uh, with the teaching. So we know that there's many more events out there, uh, but people, it's sometimes not top of mind. And so one of the things we did also was go beyond orientation, because one of the things we knew is that standard quality and safety curricula really were needed in all programs. And um, specifically, it wasn't just about QI 101. I mean, the IHI Open School is a wonderful resource that can fill that gap. What is often needed is sort of the institutional QI 101, which is who are these people? How do you submit an event report? What's the hospital scorecard? How do I find the scorecard? Um, if I want to do a quality improvement project, where do I get started? And how do I find out if this project is actually of interest to the institution? And so partnering with um, different residency programs across the institution, we've started an interdepartmental quality and safety program for interns. It started originally in three different departments, in medicine, surgery, and pediatrics. It's now expanding to six departments, as well as being put online for all new faculty and new residents at our institution. And so it's paired with a, a quality improvement educator as well as a hospital leader who co-teaches it to kind of provide that um, sort of amplification that this is important. And we've actually studied it, and we've shown that it's not the uh, QI 101 or the safety 101. They're coming in being able to take a test around what's a, what's a near miss and what's an adverse event. They are getting that piece. Um, what they don't know is, oh, how to do a fishbone, or what are the safety priorities for the institution? How do you use the event reporting system? So that's just an example of some of the work that we're doing to try to align curricula is literally inviting hospital leaders to become faculty in our programs. And it sounds crazy, but many of them are like, yes, you know, for especially some of our executives in safety um, and um, folks that are in nursing that are not physicians, they're like, oh, I would love to be a faculty in your program. And so they get to list that. They're very excited to meet the, meet the residents um, firsthand and let them know in their uh, view what matters at the institution. So, um, so that is some of the work we've done on the educational side. So what's some of the work we've done on the health system side? And this is really about how are we creating systems that allow frontline um, clinicians to actually align their quality improvement work with the organization. And so one of the ways that we've done that most successfully is actually through crowdsourcing. And so uh, this sounds a little bit odd, but uh, this Sometimes this happens to you where I actually work with a nonprofit called Costs of Care, and we'd been doing some crowdsourcing for, you know, really 
you know, brilliant ideas for how to teach value or improve value in your local institutions. And so um, my chief quality officer came to me and said, you know, you know, you seem to know a lot about crowdsourcing and you're doing this other thing for this other national group. Can you do it here? And I was like, oh, how novel. Maybe I should do that at home, you know. And so sometimes you don't think about, you know, and this was actually an example of me thinking there's no way that I would be able to do this work at home. But sometimes you need that invitation and providing the alignment and the bridging uh, allowed people to get to know me to say, hey, this looked interesting. Could you try this at home? So we launched this Choosing Wisely Challenge. And basically, uh, it's really like opening Pandora's box. It's a little bit scary. We invite students, residents, fellows, and staff to submit a description of a low-value problem uh, occurring at University of Chicago in 20 words or less. And so we perf we lowered the bar. It used to be higher, but we wanted to lower the bar because several of our other professionals um, uh, particularly all across our organization were slightly intimidated by submitting something longer. So we were like just 20 words or less. And so, um, and we actually say low value problem or any health system problem. It's amazing what comes through. And so this is truly opening Pandora's box because this is the last thing your CMO usually wants, which is tell me all your problems, but that's usually what they get. And so, um, we then engaged, um, the hospital leaders to actually pick the top five. So we did some, we, we took all the submissions and the hospital leaders picked the top five. We issued the top five themes, um, in a call. And in the call, we said, um, you can, you can propose a solution. Here are all the members of P, of the, of teams who have already submitted ideas. And so if you submitted an idea around, low-value care around telemetry. Oh, wow, look, a cardiologist submitted, as well as a general internist, as well as hospitalist. You, could, you guys could work together, and there was a nurse who also submitted. So we tried to form the teams based on the people who uh, participated in the incubator. The next thing we did was we said that all the teams must have a trainee as well as a staff member, so it has to be interdisciplinary, so that we can't just have siloed teams, but the teams must actually be working together um, to affect all staff. And then we have a a challenge selection committee that includes our chief medical information officer, because not surprisingly, a lot of the solutions do end up with IT issues. And what do you win? Uh, well, you don't win money, but you win something even more valuable than money, which is you win jumping the queue in the epic optimization process to have your change at the top of the list when you're submitted. And believe it or not, uh, that sounds crazy, but it turns out that um, some of the changes that come through wait two years, and the person's left the organization by the time they submitted. And so this is actually very valuable. So people really, really want to do this. So. Um, so we get usually about 130 to 150 uh, people across the organization submitting in the incubator, and some of them are people in supply chain, in the security guards submitted around safety. I mean, truly amazing to read what people are saying, the issues that they're dealing with. And even if they're not picked as a theme, many of them are, what we do is we kind of connect them to the hospital leadership that oversees it to say, hey, people in security mentioned this is an issue, and so that we try to take that up the chain. And then we take the five themes. Now, not surprisingly, we map the themes to our annual operating plan, but we go one step further for alignment. We say, how does your, how does your idea actually fit with the annual operating plan? And most of the people initially are like, what's the annual operating plan? But it has a link to say, click here to see the annual operating plan. So this allows people to actually see what is the thing that guides change at University of Chicago. And as you can see, many of them, uh, not surprisingly, 
surprisingly, the five themes correspond very, some, very well to what was on the annual operating plan. And so then in the, in the last part is in the submission part, we ask the teams to use a framework for change that really is about value improvement, which is a framework that we've developed uh, with colleagues at, um, um, at Dell, Chris Moriarty's, and, and Harvard, Neil Shaw. And so this framework really talks about culture. And the reason is because a lot of the early quality improvement frameworks, um, it's embedded in there, but it kind of assumes like, okay, you're going to plan and we're going to do something. And what we've often seen is that that may fail in a, in a value improvement idea if you don't address the culture up front, which is get everybody on board. So you have to address culture, oversight, who's going to really hold a, these changes accountable. Systems change, so it's not just saying we're going to train people to work better, but we're going to actually have them work smarter as well as training. So um, I'm going to show you some of our projects from this. And so this is uh, one of our projects was called Skip the Drips, which was a tackling inappropriate proton pump um, inhibitor use um, in GI bleed, and specifically the 72-hour drips for, for GI bleed. And I, you may think that sounds crazy, but in our organization, they had some, the group had partnered with pharmacy, GI, medicine, um, as well as um, supply chain to, and nursing, and showed that um, there was a big, big big chunk of inappropriate use of 72-hour drips for, uh, for GI bleed. Oftentimes, it was like the patient might not even get a scope, but if, even if you're thinking about a GI bleed, you were like, oh, let's start them on 72-hour um, you know, proton pump inhibitor. And, um, and the reason that this was so costly, not only just because of the drug, but they're going to be in the hospital for 72 hours getting this drip. And so, um, so in terms of the culture, what they did initially, these, this group of uh, residents were like, well, we're in the fellow. The GI fellow was like, well, nobody's going to listen to me, but they'll listen to my GI fellowship program director because people really like uh, Dr. Gotham Reddy. So we're going to put his picture all over the hospital with the brochure and the workroom so people know that he is the one who is driving this because everybody thinks GI is the one who wants the patient on the proton pump inhibitor or I won't get a scope if they're on the 72-hour drip. And it turned out that intermittent is just as good. They reviewed the evidence, but they went one step further really with the culture. Their epic change was really in the um, field of accountable justification, which is that you had to describe, use one of the major indications for a 72-hour drip if you were starting a continuous infusion. And if you weren't starting a continuous infusion, you we didn't do a hard stop, but we did an other, other specify. But other specify was sort of a hidden slap, like because you were going to get a call from pharmacy, who was the oversight, to be like, did you really mean to start this? And you know what was that? And so then it allowed us to also see people's thinking for why they were starting 72-hour drips when not using the accepted indications. For example, in one case, they actually said concerned that, or they said GI attending might want it. And so that, that allowed us to see people actually write in their real reasons, which was fascinating. Um, so this is our GI fellow who uh, led this project along with several of our residents um, and actually did expand also to surgery, which was really interesting how momentum starts to pick up. So you can clearly see when the epic change went live um, around July 2015. And so you're, and the, this, they won in May 2015. So you're probably wondering how did they get that epic change, but they won the gift of the ITQ. And, um, and so jumping the queue. And the other thing is they were 
were able to show a huge reduction in inappropriate PPI drips. A balancing measure also improved, which is more people got appropriate PPI drips. And the last thing is they actually worked with the hospital value people to do time-driven activity-based costing to show that in this period alone, they saved $200,000 in drug costs uh, and uh, labor costs alone. That's not even to mention potential length of stay. That's assuming if everyone switched to intermittent. Some people actually switched to nothing, and so you can imagine. So this work, which was a trainee-led intervention supported by the institution, um, is now in press at JAMA Internal Medicine. So I'm also excited about the opportunity to sort of bring this to conclusion and have them have a scholarly publication in quality improvement and get them really excited about this. So this GI fellow actually was also able to present at his professional society at DDW in a special oral presentation dedicated to quality improvement. So giving you the sense that there is this new pathway for these trainees to succeed. So our next project uh, was called Flip for Discharge, kind of a model on flipping the clinic and, you know, why aren't we getting people ready for discharge on day one? And so uh, this is Charlie Ray, who actually wanted to tackle the problem of when uh, uh, sort of one that was in our horror room, which is you often see an patient with a Foley catheter, uh, but you don't know how it got there. And in fact, in surveys that Sanjay Saint has done from University of Michigan, when they survey um, doctors about their patient's Foley catheter, the patient has a catheter, but the doctors often say that they don't or they didn't know. And so they dub that immaculate catheterization. And so um, and so this was Charlie. He was going to really, I know actually we laugh, but immaculate catheterization was associated with higher risk of catheter-associated UTI. So this was tackling the immaculate catheterization, which was not a BPA or an alert. This was not an active alert. This was a passive reminder just to be like, hey, did you know your patient's on a Foley? Or similarly for telemetry, because they've shown the same with telemetry. So this is the patient list in Epic, which is sort of the Bible of what we all print out to follow our patients. And they just added these check boxes to be like, your patient's on tele, your patient's on Foley, according to Epic. But if you click on the check mark, and this is to make the work smart, it actually goes, takes you to the order to stop it. So it makes it very easy from your iPad to stop it. And so as the attending, I loved this because I literally could look at my list and be like, why, you know, I, I just could like, okay, let's look down our census and be like, why are these people all on telemetry? And so, um, so this actually was interesting. It was a systems change, some education, but it was email education only, very little other education. And they were able to show dramatic reductions in catheter orders uh, as well as telemetry orders. Um, and this is actually already out in the American Journal of Medicine, highlighting the role of EHR optimization. And what I loved about this was, you know, it was something that didn't add work in the EHR. So it was also a win in the sense that it was just easily integrated into the, into the workflow. Um, so with the remaining time I have, I'm going to tell you about um, our uh, uh, project that I've also been uh, working on with nursing around choosing wisely conditions around sleep. And so uh, one of the things that uh, we know is uh, Florence Nightingale was, a, a, you know, a, a really a leader in nursing who really talked in her initial notes on nursing uh, book, had a whole chapter dedicated to noise and sleep. And so this is something that's been part of nursing culture for a very long time, and not surprisingly, it made it into the Choosing Wisely list, which is not to wake the patient up. 
And similarly, there's a huge value case for improving sleep and noise, um, particularly around delirium, pathophysiological effects, um, patient experience, especially with value-based purchasing. And um, here's just some of the numbers. This is one of the lowest-performing HCAPS measures. And so anyone trying to improve HCAPS measures, well, this is one that's ripe for improvement. Um, I, I did actually look at Dartmouth's last night just to see where you guys were on a hospital compare, and it's actually lower than the Chicago numbers, and um, so I think that there's work that could be done here. So, um, so what did our residents and nurses say? So this was actually going to the front line, engaging them similarly through our Choosing Wisely Challenge, and they said it was an epic problem, and it wasn't just a big problem. It literally was a problem with epic, and so when epic got installed, all recur recurrent morning labs were defaulted to 4 a.m., such that an intern said, even if I had a VIP patient, I would have to, you know, change every lab individually, and who would do that? Uh, medication administration, the default was heparin Q8 hours for VTE. Uh, BID was not even an option, or Lovenox, and I'm embarrassed to say I was on the committee that led to that decision, so sometimes you don't think about your downstream decisions. And then vitals uh, were, there was a question that was, uh, that you could ask a doctor to say, do you want vitals through the night? But the EPIC optimization process when they first started said, well, they just saw all vitals were four hours, so they just took that away and hid the question. So nobody even knew how to actually, um, you know, not order vitals that night. So we actually just worked with EPIC similarly to actually unhide the question. I mean, this was literally the easiest IT fix in the world because the IT group was like, well, I can turn this on tomorrow. I'm like, well, maybe we need to wait and just let the nurses know and do some culture groundwork because uh, they were like, oh, yeah, we can do this, and that's very rare. But just to highlight, sometimes the optimization is there. Um, and then we added BID, heparin, and Lovenox as an option to the Gen Med order set. We did a lot of work on changing culture, working with nurses, as well as integrating into their standard work. Um, our nurses are, uh, we, we have a lean performance improvement work. They all have um, a managing daily improvement board, so we did a lot of work with them to do that. And so you can clearly see, similarly, you can see when our EHR orders for vitals and heparin were turned on. We had two units here, one that had intensive nursing education and added it to their standard daily work and one that didn't. So the blue line actually added it to their work and the red line didn't, in the, in, but the epic change went live in the whole hospital. So you can see that there is a change um, and it does matter. Nursing education does matter. Um, and we also looked at um, and this is kind of some interesting stuff because I am embedded now in quality. I see that they have a lot of data. Sometimes we're always like, where do you get data from? So this is uh, nocturnal room entries. And this is actually, where do I get this? I get this from the Gojo hand hygiene sensors because when it's a heat sensor and the denominator for the hand hygiene unit is that a body entered the room. And so just, I don't care if the hand hygiene dispenser went off for, for this data, for the numerator. I just care about the denominator. So I can download the data look at the data and actually look to see did room entries at night go down. And you can see when our epic change went live, the room entries went way down, started to creep back up. When, uh, when it was added into the nursing huddle, it went down again. This actually translates into uh, six entries per room decrease at night from an average of around 14. So it's a lot of room entries. Uh, and not surprisingly, our patients reported um, better sleep. And so they four times... Uh, 
more likely to not be uh, disrupted by medications and three times more likely not to be disrupted by vitals. And lastly, you know, what does the hospital care about? So it's big gains in HCAP scores at the unit level. And, um, and this may not seem big compared to our control group, which didn't have any change, but a 5% change in HCAP score moves you 25 percentiles in this measure. So it's big. Um, so that project really led me to think about, well, how are we going to work on really catalyzing GME nursing collaboration in QI, because that was like a slam dunk, right? That was a project where we involved residents and nurses, and we got all the way to measures that not only improved their engagement around this issue and empowerment, but also impacted patients. Um, so at the same time, there was a greater desire for collaboration, and people were like, this is great. We want to do more QI projects together. So we really needed to think about structure to do that. So we do not have geographic admitting in our institution. And so one of the big challenges was how are we going to catalyze this work in the absence of geographic admitting? So what we did was we created um, teams of um, of really um, of well high-performing teams of nurses and residents together. So we married a residency program with a unit. And even if you didn't float on that unit that week or that month, you, that was your unit. It's so like adopt a unit program. We had the nurses vote for the residents that they thought modeled interprofessional practice the best and vice versa on the other side. And so it was an honor to participate. It was congratulations from the CNO, CMO, and myself. You've been named an Ignite champion improving GME nursing interprofessional team experiences. If you choose to accept, you're going to work with us for the next two years on improving this um, culture um, and do quality improvement projects. So nobody has refused. Uh, we have really high-level executive sponsorship. So each of the teams, the inaugural teams, actually all chose to work on interprofessional communication. And I'm going to be really... Um, you know, candid. I, I didn't want them to do that. I thought it was going to be too heavy a lift. And I was like, oh my God, how am I going to document that this actually had an impact? Because I had to actually show ROI to our institution. And so this is just the pediatric Ignite team where they uh, they actually change the way rounds work. And so they've got the nurse on rounds. The attending is right there. The residents are presenting. Um, and they did a lot of quality improvement. They added Ignite rounds participation to their MDI board. They, nurses were trained to present at rounds so that they could present concisely. And this is how deep the change went. The attendees taught the residents to present differently because the nurses said, we can't wait here while you're having the differential diagnosis of asthma be discussed because we already know that and we need to go take care of our patients. And so the residents changed the way they run rounds, and now they start with the assessment and plan. So I've seen these rounds. The resident starts assessment plan. Nurse goes with calm. Okay, any questions about the day? The nurse peels off. They continue on with the teaching, and then it continues. And so this has been a slam dunk. It improved resident and nurse satisfaction with communication. Uh, it's been so successful that the new interns, when asked how it was going, they're like, well, I don't know how it would have gone. How did it go before? They have no idea. You know, that's how you cement the best practice. And it's also improved patient experience scores on that unit, it's particularly trust with the doctor and coordination with care. And you may wonder why trust with the doctor, but, you know, if you're, in t if you're walking in as a team and as a patient, you're seeing that your nurse is on the same page with your doctor, you know, I think that that's been pretty compelling. 
We also have institutional performance improvement events that we've been running with operational excellence, and this one was on peripheral IVs that involved four residency programs, uh, two residents from four residency programs, two nurses from four units across the hospital on peripheral IVs. And, um, and you might wonder, well, why would we choose peripheral IVs? This was a literal pain point for a lot of people in the hospital, and, um, and they were really motivated to change it. And so they went on Gemba Walk, and just to give you an, an example of a motley crew of patient experience people in suits and nurses and residents from different programs, when they arrived on a unit, people were like, what consult team are you? you know? And so then all of a sudden they're like, we're here with the Kaizen Improvement Team. And they're like, what's that? And so really kind of highlighting how you can get residents involved. And so they have to present daily uh, to our executive suite team. And so here were the lessons learned in the last one that they presented. And so many of them, unprompted by me, said things about teamwork, breaking down silos, and their process is actually approved by medical executive staff committee. We have 50 nurses that have been trained in ultrasound-guided use of IVs and are we're about launching the training, hoping to be complete by October 15th and go live. So with that, um, I'm going to leave you with uh, time for questions, and hopefully this will be the next bridge that I'm on because I'm going to vacation in Scotland. And so uh, this is the bridge that appears in the Harry Potter movie, so now you can understand why we're going to be doing that. But um, also, hopefully, I've provided a little bit of a sense of the vision for, uh, for some of the work that I do. Thank you. Thank you, Vinny. We have time for some comments or reflections. Yes. Those of us who are concerned about um, high-impact medical students' experiences, I was wondering whether or not, either in the horror room or other observations of residency um, behavior, if you've noticed any differences in students whose medical student experience included either a longitudinal integrated clerkship or attended a school with a, with a um, global PDL curriculum, such as New Mexico or McMaster. No, that's a great question, and uh, and we actually have a we have a longitudinal preceptor program, uh, not a necessarily a longitudinal clerkship model, but we have we're sort of experimenting with that type of work. Um, so the. Horror room that we did look by school. I didn't actually cut that way, but we don't see any school differences. We don't see any specialty differences either. So we we believe that um, there's and there's no difference in you know it's also your confidence and ability your your self-rated confidence going into the horror room doesn't also predict your performance. So really, there's something else being tested, and it's in simulation. It's just a whole theory around situational awareness, which is how aware are you of your environment. And are you able to do that timeout to say, oh, this is not right? And so that's a skill that I'm not sure that we're teaching. And so that's sort of where I would say that some of what you're describing may relate to doctor-patient communication but might not relate to these actionable things that you have to do. We're also working on building an ambulatory horror room. We do have a pediatric horror room, so we stood that up this year. It's pretty frightening as a parent to see a baby face down in a crib. Uh, but, uh, you know, they have to pick that up. So a mannequin, I should say. <laughs> Um, that was amazing. So many things to think about. So the confidence question is really interesting to me, and I'm wondering if you've looked at the um, other higher 
um, more senior staff in doing the horrors because I wonder with the tendency toward weekly handoffs to yes. care and the likelihood that many of the patients you're seeing had their care plans started by someone else. Yes. So I'm going to tell you that the next um, um, phase of work that really needs to happen is faculty development. So, um, you know, I, I sort of bridge from GME, and so that's the lever that I pull. Um, but even at ACGME, they're starting to have really big conversations about the faculty. And so just like I said, we unleashed our students. Well, we unleashed our residents, and so um, I have to run our faculty through the horror room. I don't know what they're going to say, but, uh, but I do think that's a really important thing to do. Your point about handoffs is a really good one because uh, there's two, two competing thoughts on handoffs. One is that um, you anchor on what's been, what you've been told, which is very common and been shown in ER to floor handoffs, and there's a lot of anchoring, which leads to diagnostic error. The second, though, is if, if you reconceptualize handoff as a learning opportunity and a conversation about learning, then you can actually um, activate the receiver to be a fresh look. And so there are examples of safety improved through handoffs. And so the question is, when that happens, what was that receiver doing? And a lot of times they weren't like, uh-huh, uh-huh, back-channeling, which we know that demented patients are capable of doing, but really sort of asking a question, taking notes. Um, so we see a lot of active listening. Listening. And so training people to be activated listeners. Similar, I mean, it's very similar to that same, you know, situational awareness so that you're like all hands on deck. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not in the middle of a side conversation or distracted. I mean, these are all the things. So in a separate simulation, we've built a handoff simulation. And then what... This what came to my mind is that we only model good handoffs, right? So then what we started doing was similarly throwing curveballs. We created really loud hospital noise at 90 decibels, you know, of you know where, and it changes the way the handoff occurs. Uh, we also had the receiver be super distracted by getting a, a page and trying to throw the, the sender off. And so we've started to model what that looks like, and it's not pretty. And so um, so we've trained people for, like, oh, in a perfect state, here's how you do a handoff. But we haven't trained them to surmount, uh, like, like in the military, you know, um, what what is actually happening in practice and how to actually um, you have countermeasures for the things that are coming at you. I agree, that was totally inspiring. And uh, I think part of it is that you make it feel kind of fun and possible to do the right thing. And um, this connects to something I hear a lot in the hallway, which is we're too busy to do this stuff. You know, I have to pick these notes, I have to do X, Y, and Z. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's, my, that's my obstacle to doing this, this important thing. And yet, you're accomplishing so much. So I wonder, have you found that that is actually true? Um, you know, I often will say there are times where, I, where people will propose something and I'll be like, no, it's too much work. You know, I'm not going to do that. And a lot of times it'll be like um, the data collection will require a two-page survey. And I'll be like, no, we're not going to do that, you know, unless you want to collect it. And what incentive are you going to give? And, you know, this is people's time. And so I think that... Um, and that's why I stay, try to stay close to the ground. And so one challenge, I think, for leadership is as you move up the chain, it can be difficult to get that view from the ground. And so as long as you – and I think the residents are – 
very candid in telling you what they feel sometimes, and so you kind of know. And so, uh, you know, we, we time our interventions carefully, and we also think a lot about what's possible. And sometimes, you know, there are things that are just not possible, and you're like, that's that's not going to be feasible. And so in a lot of that, actually, we when we rate our projects that come in, feasibility is the first criteria. And so if it's not feasible, it's not going to fly. And a lot of times we, we have people at the table that are like, IT, not, not going to be possible this year. The other, and that's important to know. And the second uh, group that's there is our CMO, who literally is like, I can't get physicians behind that. You know, they're they're dealing with other things, um, and or they're not gonna. I, they don't want another alert. And so we're very thoughtful about that piece. Um, and so I think if people know you're trying and also that you're bringing institutional resources, so we're not asking the residents or the nurses to collect their own data, right? We're bringing the resources and aligning it so that our institution is already doing this, but doing projects, but they're doing projects saying, How, why don't we have people involved? And then our, our front line is like, why isn't anyone helping us? And so you find the win and you're like, oh, I can help you do that. I have a project manager or a data analyst who can sort of analyze this telemetry data. And so that's another piece is arming people with the support that they need such that the, even the data analysts are like, oh, it's so great. I get to know a resident. You know, that's awesome. And then the next committee, they're like, oh, well, I know Charlie. Let me ask him what he thinks. So you're starting to see that crosstalk. Vinny, that's great. I'm cognizant of the time, and I know that people have to move on, but there's so much passion and excitement about what you have presented Thank today. you. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Thank you. Thank you.